The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plants, it's time to Hempresent. Our radio resident Hempo-Sapien Vivian McPeak will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to Hempresent about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. Welcome to the Hemp Present Resistance, a weekly radio podcast where you can get your PhD in THC because you don't just want to burn it, you want to learn it. Seeking to defeat the alternative facts of prohibition one interview at a time and advocating for the plant, the whole plant, and nothing but the plant. Join me for a weekly reefer radio rebellion against prohibition as I speak with some of the principal risk takers, movers and shakers, and history makers of the cannabis industry, culture, and reform movement, and beyond. I'm your host, Vivian McPeak. I am the executive director of the world's largest annual cannabis policy reform event, the Seattle Hemp Fest, in its 26th year, found at hempfest.org. I'm also the author of the book, Protestable, a 20-year retrospective of Seattle Hemp Fest from AHA Publishing, also found at hempfest.org. Transmitting from a fortified bunker under a ramshackle reef for Radio Warren at an undisclosed location deep within the rumbling bowels of underground Seattle. My goal is to spread the green flame of 420 truth in 30-minute increments. Today's guest on Hempresent is addiction author and specialist Maya Salovitz, who will join me in about 120 seconds. I grew up in the illicit drug culture. I was 10 years old in 1968, just as the American drug culture was really starting to take hold. In fifth grade, I had a drug awareness class at school, and in that class, I was taught all of the street names and clinical names for a smorgasbord of drugs that were most abused on the street. I was taught about cocaine, heroin, and a host of pharmaceutical drugs. I was taught that second all was a barbiturate that was called a red on the street, and that the common speed at the time, benzodrine, was called a benny, and I learned what each and every drug looked like. In that class, we also viewed a Reefer Madness-style movie that showed a young man who smoked a joint looking at his image in the mirror, which transformed before his eyes into a skull, then a devil, then a monster. The kid ended up jumping out of a window to his death from the hallucinations supposedly caused by the weed he had smoked. When I eventually tried pot at 12, I was startled to discover that the effects were actually quite mild, milder than alcohol to me. I quickly surmised that the dangers that I had been taught about cannabis were lies, and I deduced that everything they told me about drugs must have also been an inaccurate exaggeration. By the age of 13, I was living in Folsom, California, and I was using IV drugs after a friend's older brother taught us both how to use a hypodermic needle. By the 1980s, I had started to snort cocaine, which was fairly manageable for me until my first hit off a freebase pipe. 
I struggled that entire decade with cocaine and heroin addiction, which partially derailed my life and caused some permanent health problems. And I eventually ended up in a drug treatment program seeking the benefits offered. There, I learned about the process of addiction. I learned so much that I was unable to continue the denial that allowed me to harm my health, my life, and impact those who were close to me that I loved. I was very fortunate that I was able to move away from addiction. So I have strong opinions on addiction and how we approach addicts in our society. My guest today also has a drug past, as well as strong, educated opinions on the issues of addiction, addiction treatment, and the stigma we place on those battling the illness. Maya Salovitz is an American reporter and author who is focused on science, public policy, and addiction treatment. She blogs for the Huffington Post. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsday, and many other major publications, and has worked extensively in television. Maya has authored numerous books, and she's joined me today. Welcome, Maya, to Him Present on Cannabis Radio. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. America's in the midst of an unprecedented crippling opioid addiction crisis. Maya, how prepared are we as a society to deal with addiction in any effective, compassionate, and humane way? Not very well. We tend to do exactly the opposite of what would actually help people. Well, our society tends to treat addiction as if it's a moral flaw, as if it's a sign of weakness and a lack of moral character. What's wrong with that characterization? Well, it doesn't work, and it's inaccurate. So basically... The best definition we have for addiction is compulsive behavior, including compulsive drug use, that occurs despite negative consequences. So if negative consequences fixed addiction, by definition, the problem would not exist. Now, negative consequences is basically another way to say punishment. And so we try to use punishment and shame and attacks and moralizing to stop a problem that is defined by its resistance to exactly those tactics. And then we are surprised when it doesn't work. And the irony, of course, is that often the people who are judging addicts are addicted to coffee, tobacco, alcohol, or all three. Uh, But there's no equivalent moral judgment made regarding those substances. Do you agree? Well, I mean, there's certainly some judgment around tobacco and alcohol these days. But The idea that if you take those substances, you should be put in a cage, we certainly don't have, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. Um, You've said that tough love interventions and 12-step programs, some of the most common methods of treating drug addiction are often counterproductive. What did you mean by that? Well, like I said, tough love, which is trying to force people to hit bottom and throwing your kid out of the house and refusing to speak to your husband if they don't quit immediately. All of these kinds of things are an attempt to use negative consequences to stop addiction. And as I've just said, that is not effective. Basically, what you're doing is you are probably going to make the person worse. Now, in some instances, people will respond to this, but The idea that you can hit bottom and then you are cured of addiction and you will never relapse can only be determined retrospectively. It's a completely unscientific concept. So, for example, if I get into recovery after stubbing my toe and then I go on and I'm in recovery for 10 years and then I, you know, develop a giant abscess from shooting up. So how is stubbing my toe the bottom? Like it just, you, the only way you could define a bottom would be if you managed to die in recovery or die from active addiction. 
Um, so it's, it's really a harmful concept. And tough love is based entirely on the idea that if we just make things awful enough for people with addiction, they'll have to stop. And when you consider what people with addiction go through, they lose their family, their friends, their house, their kids, their cats. Like, why would additional consequences help? My experience is that addiction often uh, is rooted in, in emotional and physical pain and, and some form of self-esteem issue, at least in my case, it was certainly that way. And there's a tremendous amount of shame uh, a tremendous amount of powerlessness and guilt that comes along with addiction. So by, by further shaming and stigmatizing people, they're only driving that deeper and, and, and making it even harder for an addict to maybe uh, find a place in their heart to seek uh, help. Is that any, at any, at any way accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Because when you shame and humiliate people, you tell them that they're worthless. And if you already think you're worthless and there's no hope, why wouldn't you just use more drugs? Right. Because I know when I was using drugs, uh, it made me feel whole. It made me feel complete, relaxed, uh, present, alive. And, and, and when, I, when I came off of those drugs, I felt terrible uh, emotionally, psychologically. And my headspace was the only way I could feel better is to do more. Well, exactly. And the thing that happens with a lot of cases of addiction, about half of people with addiction have an additional mental illness or developmental issue. So they're starting with a temperament that predisposes them to having problems, whether that is a temperament that makes them impulsive or whether it makes them anxious or depressive or any one of a zillion things, some of which can be opposite to each other. So you start out, you know, at a mood level or a comfort level that's lower than normal. You don't start out happy, 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 and then you just wanna get extra happy. That is the moral myth about addiction. You are starting out feeling awful and you just wanna feel okay. Um, so you've got that sort of temperamental piece, but then on top of that, two thirds of people with addiction have at least one extreme experience of childhood trauma, whether that's being neglected as an infant, being beaten by your parents, being sexually abused, being verbally and emotionally abused, losing your parents, uh, watching violence, um, seeing your mother shot, you know, all these horrible tragedies, all of these kinds of things increase your risk for being addicted. So it's not like people with addiction are sort of, you know, happy hedonistic people seeking extra pleasure and being lazy about doing the hard work to get that. It's more that you're starting from less than zero. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, my, my mother abandoned me at six months old. Wow. Uh, and, I, and I lived in a broken home, so, so I think that might be one of the sources of my issues. Um, my uh, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, and now we see analogs of fentanyl like carfentanyl that can be up to 100 times stronger than fentanyl, sometimes rendering the anti-overdose drug naloxone ineffective. How bad of a crisis is this, and what role does the pharmaceutical industry have in the current opioid addiction crisis, in your opinion? Okay, so uh, the pharmaceutical industry is certainly not innocent in the opioid problem that we have, but there are certainly far more factors than that. They certainly pushed opioids and had 
pressure on doctors to prescribe more and did all of the things that they are unfortunately absolutely legally allowed to do. Um, and that certainly did increase the opioid supply. However, if we had had a healthy middle class, this would not have created the level of problem that we see now because, you know, about even if you're talking about recreational use, only about 10 to 20 percent of people who try these drugs for recreational reasons become addicted. And when people get exposed medically, addiction rates are generally actually much lower, particularly if you screen them. So it's not the case that if you just expose people, you're going to create massively higher levels of addiction because most people are not going to get addicted via exposure alone. But when you expose an unemployed, highly traumatized, alienated, unhappy, high levels of physical pain population to opioids, and you don't offer them anything else, and they are economically deprived and you're giving them a pill, you know, 60 of a pill that they can sell for $30 a piece, you're going to create some perverse incentives there. And you're going to end up with the situation that we have where most of the misuse of opioids that we saw did not occur among pain patients. About 70 to 80% of the people who were misusing uh, prescription opioids, they were not using their own prescription. They were getting it from their parents' medicine cabinet, from friends, from dealers, from other people. It was not from doctors. And so it's much more complicated than, oh, the drug companies pushed it and then the doctors made a bunch of people into, into people with addiction. No, what they did was increase the supply and it then got to the vulnerable people. My guest is Maya Salovitz. We're going to take our first pause for the cause because there's flaws and laws as we do here on Hempresent. Come right back after word from our sponsors and advertisers. Time to roll out for the people that let us Hempresent. Hang loose. We're coming right back. This is Bobby Black, host of Blazin, here to talk to you about 420 Science. I've known Matt and Gary from 420 Science for over a decade. We've spent a lot of time together at the Cannabis Cups in Amsterdam, the Doobie Awards in their hometown of Austin. They were even at my wedding. And I've always admired their integrity and how they've built 420 Science from the ground up to become the most trusted online head shop. Visit 420science.com slash podcast for an exclusive deal on pipes and more from genuine people who put their customers first. That's 420science.com slash podcast. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com. Ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C-A-N-N-A Radio on Twitter. 
Plus, look for our Facebook and Google Plus pages for all of our original programs and connect with Dr. Dina, Kyle Cushman, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Nurse Heather, Doc Rob, the host of Gondrepreneur, and more. Connect with the growing cannabis radio social crusade at Canna Radio on Twitter or search for Cannabis Radio on Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram and grow with us. We're back to Hemp Present, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. We're back on Hemp Present with Maya Salovitz. Maya, there's a state senator here in Washington who has a bill to ban safe injection sites from our state. What do you think of that? That's really stupid. Safe injection sites have been studied for, I think, at least a decade. Anyway, for quite a long time, there has never been an overdose death in one of these safe injection facilities. And around the neighborhoods where they are, overdose deaths are reduced. So if you want to ban something that will help solve the problem, I think that's actually stupid. And usually the rationale for these kinds of things is, oh, if we have these things, our children will be encouraged to be IV drug users. Now, I have never seen a child who walks past a homeless IV drug user in the street or at a needle exchange and says, mommy, can I be that when I grow up? Um, You know, it's just absurd. Um, People, you know, the visible uh, experience of seeing addicted people suffering from addiction often leads to, unfortunately, disgust and stigma, not, yeah, that's what I want to do. So that's a stupid argument. Um, The idea that consequences are going to stop this problem has been abundantly falsified. And, you know, it's just political posturing from what I can tell. Uh, We have a a store, a little hemp boutique called Hemp Fest Central in Lake City here in Seattle. Uh, And and our community has just a a disproportional amount of of addiction and heroin, uh, IV needle use. There's, There's needles on the ground all over the place. Uh, often, and I've been uh, going to uh, uh, business meetings in this community advocating for safe injection sites. And what I'm hearing from people is they think that people are going to migrate from other communities to use these safe injection sites, which is crazy. Uh, my experience is that addicts are kind of creatures of uh, convenience, um, and nobody's going to go across town to use a safe injection site. But if there's one there in the community, they can use it and it can de- decrease overdoses. Uh, it will uh, keep them from shooting up in doorways and, and stairways and things like that and also give people a chance to, to have access to treatment. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. And it will also help get those needles off the street. Um, people um, want to protect themselves. And yes, it is certainly the case that if you have just bought your drugs and you are slightly in withdrawal, the last thing you're going to do is say, okay, I'm going to run across town to a safe injection facility. And that's kind of a shame because we would like it if they would actually do that. But in terms of the uh, neighbor NIMBY kind of issue, no, if you've got needles all over your ground already, you have an IV drug use population right there and you are not going to create or attract new of them by doing a safe injection facility. What you will do, as you mentioned, is you will give people an opportunity to relax a second, to feel safe, to feel accepted. And it's in those moments when people can begin to think about getting treatment 
And if you then have people there who can help them with that, any kind of access to care that you give people tends to improve their use of it. So these facilities, like with needle exchange, everybody's like, oh, you give people clean needles, they're just going to keep using longer. (laughs) In fact, if you give people clean needles, they are more likely to get into treatment. In fact, about two thirds of people who participate in needle exchange eventually get into treatment. And that's more than in the population that doesn't use needle exchanges. So it's, it's a really bad and unsupported argument. And doesn't interacting with other people uh, that, that give you a sense of value as a human being, doesn't that also help an addict to feel like to help their self-worth and esteem, which is a major root uh, cause sometimes of addiction? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you think about it, when you're an active IV drug user, like people are often like crossing the street to avoid you. People shudder when they see you coming. They don't want you around. You are constantly shamed and humiliated and or people just don't even see you. So when you go to a place that says, I accept you for who you are. And in fact, I am here to help you stay alive and I do not demand anything of you. That is incredibly powerful. That's kind of like almost unconditional love. And when people feel that they're in a place where they're respected and and where, you know, somebody is reaching out to them and saying, you are valuable exactly as you are, not like the only reason you should live is so that you can get into recovery instantly and do exactly what I want you to do. When there's not that transactional thing going on, yeah, a lot of amazing stuff can happen, including getting people into recovery. So the answer might be tough love minus the tough part. Um, exactly. Love love. Uh, and I know that people are rolling their eyes right now, the idea that you would love an addict, but, but, but that shows you how far off base we are. Do you have any sense on what role cannabis could play in shifting emphasis from opioids as a first line of defense against pain in terms of addressing addiction? Well, there are clearly people who say that when they use medical cannabis, they use fewer opioids. So there's one direct effect. And there's also people who have said that I use cannabis to stop uh, my opioid use. And there's also, there's at least six different studies now showing that cannabis and opioids, um, to some extent, substitute for each other. So the states that have medical marijuana have overdose rates that are 25% lower. And these are all correlational studies, but they're all going in the same direction. And that direction is more cannabis use is less opioid use. And I mean, there was even one study showing that I think it was Medicaid. I can't remember if it was Medicaid or Medicare, but one of the two, or actually, I think there were studies on both that showed like they could save hundreds of millions of dollars by having cannabis available as a pain treatment. Now, could cannabis entirely replace opioids for everyone? That is completely unrealistic. Probably could, not. Yeah. Could it reduce harm and reduce reduce opioid use entirely, pe- entirely for some people and slightly for others? Yes, I think that the data is clear on that already. And people, it is insane that it is legal to prescribe a drug that can kill you, and it is not legal to prescribe one that cannot kill you. 
Hallelujah, sister. Um, <laughs> what is cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational enhancement therapy, and why are they effective ways to address addiction? So cognitive therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, basically um, works on helping people avoid relapse and avoid the self-destructive and self-esteem lowering practices that often drive addiction. So if you feel like you're a really horrible, terrible person and everybody hates you and you do cognitive therapy, the therapist will probably help you consider for a moment, well, what's the evidence for that? And how do you know that you're not just thinking that? Why do you think that your view on that is like the objective truth? And they will help you sort of think through and looking around you and stop this kind of very distorted negative thinking that is characteristic of depression and that often leads to relapse in depressed people with addiction. Then there's sort of a behavioral piece which involves dealing with things like when you get stressed, you're going to want to use more. So, okay, how do we deal with that? Or when you um, see a needle or when you go to that old neighborhood, you're going to want to use more. So how do we deal with it? So it teaches you very practical skills that help you reframe your own thinking in ways that will make you feel better. And motivational enhancement is basically that it's basically a harm reduction therapy. And the idea is you meet the person where they're at. And so if that person wants to go from having 10 drinks a day to having five drinks a day, that's what you're going to work on with them. And if that cannot be achieved, you may have to change goals, but you really want to figure out what does this person want out of life? And how can we look at the ways that drugs are getting in the way of this and help them find healthier ways to uh, manage and how they can sort of also reduce their drug use or eliminate their drug use in a way such that they feel comfortable and safe and not deprived and um, they are not engaging in, in you know, harmful levels of use. When you were 20 years old, you were busted with two and a half kilos of cocaine, but I believe that you avoided prison largely because you're an upper, you were an upper white class female. How racist are our drug policies and the enforcement of them? Well, our drug policies, the only drug laws that were not created due almost entirely to racism are the laws that established the creation of the FDA. Everything else from the banning of marijuana to the illegalization of smoked opioids, uh, smoked opium rather, um, to the illegalization of heroin, the prohibition of alcohol. Every time that we have had a big crackdown on drugs or a war on drugs, it has always been very little to do with let's figure out how to effectively deal with the problem being caused by this drug. And it's had a great deal to do with who do we think are the users of these drugs? And if we don't like those people, can we use the drugs in order to make them look bad and marginalize them and you know lock them up and disrupt any political activity they may be doing? I think it was just yesterday that I saw MSN had an article that said public restrooms have become ground zero in the opioid epidemic. I mean, that's really an argument for safe injection sites, isn't it? Absolutely. And I just think, you know, I mean, 
one of the you know one of the reasons that our drug policy has always been insane is because it has been based on racism rather than on how do you actually keep people healthy and safe because if you want to prevent addiction you want to uh, reduce harms related to drugs the last thing you want to do is lock up drug users in a place where they have no access to anything that could help them in a place where they will be surrounded by people that may potentially traumatize them, um, where they will have reduced economic opportunity when they get out. I mean, basically it's, again, the exact opposite of what you'd wanna do if your goal was to reduce the harm related to drugs. If your goal is to lock up a lot of black people on the other hand, <laughs> it's quite effective. And you know that's what's so sick about our drug laws because we can have these very rational, empirical arguments about what works, but our policies have always been, they always have a hidden agenda. And until we brought that agenda out and until we acknowledge that, you know, no, this, we did not get our drug laws by some board of scientific experts sitting down and saying tobacco and alcohol should be legal and marijuana should be illegal because that would have to be the most idiotic group of experts ever convened. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of reception do you get from mainstream institutions when you talk about changing the way we approach addiction and addicts? Are, are you gaining any traction? Yeah, I mean, it's been quite astonishing because I've been pretty much making these same arguments. I mean, I've refined them, certainly, but I've been making most of the same arguments for about at least 25 years now. And the, you know, the last four or five years, it has been amazing. Um, and since this book came out, people have really, really been incredibly receptive. I feel like I sort of managed to put the argument together in a way that really works so that I use the personal stuff and all the research and the history and the science in a way that actually did make it accessible to people. And I think, you know, given all the current opioid problems, people are, you know, they've seen the failure of this stuff. And they're open to new ideas because they know that this isn't working. And when they see a sort of sensible explanation for both how we got here and how we can get to a better place, they really are responding in a way that I find very surprising. And, um, you know, it, it makes me extraordinarily happy, but I'm, I'm sort of uncomfortable almost because, you know, I'm not used to any mainstream acceptance in this area. <laughs> I'm talking to Maya Salovitz. We're going to take our second break. Hear a word from our sponsors, advertisers. Come back for our final questions. Don't go anywhere. Time to roll out for the people that let us have present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. National Cannabis Industry Association presents the fourth annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 12th to the 14th at the Oakland Marriott City Center in Oakland, California. Register now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com. Meet industry leaders over three days of informative sessions and visit hundreds of vendors along the more than 80,000 square feet of sold-out expo floor. Hear from over 100 thought leaders headlined by feature keynote speaker, former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. Join us at the epicenter of the cannabis movement sponsored by the industry's only National Trade Association, the fourth annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 12th through the 14th. Register now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com. Equio, New Frontier's cutting-edge big data platform, puts the information and answers you need right at your fingertips in real time to help you more effectively run your cannabis business. Go to www.equio.io to sign up for your free membership today. 
Again, that's www.eqio.io. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. We're back for our final questions with Maya Salovitz. Maya, what message would you give any addicts that might be listening to the show today, and how can people find out more about your tremendous work? Oh, thanks. So what I would say is that recovery is possible, that actually most people with addiction do recover, and Oddly enough, a majority of people recover by themselves without any formal help or any self-help. That said, if you want to get help, you should, because it is actually much, much, much better to live in recovery. And that always sounded ridiculous to me when I was using, because I just couldn't imagine what it would be like to you know, live without the substances that I felt were saving me. And I felt like, oh, gosh, if I quit, I'm just going to go back to the state of my nervous system that was unbearable before I started using. So the thing is, you can actually find a way to live comfortably in your own neurology, no matter how distorted it's been by the trauma or the mental illness or whatever of your temperament um, or the drugs themselves you can actually find a way to feel safe and comfortable without substances. And there is hope of that. You just have to keep trying. And sometimes it might take trying five or six different things. And if you go for help and the help is being humiliating or treating you with disrespect, run the other way. You don't have to put up with that nonsense and that is not effective treatment. And so I would just emphasize that you can get better and that recovery actually is fun and you do have joy and wonderful things and, and relationships and all kinds of good stuff, um, you know, that, that really can happen for you no matter how, you know, impossible that might seem at the moment. So I would totally recommend, you know, finding out more, reading some of the stuff in the area, um, talking to people, going to needle exchanges, learning about harm reduction. Um, if you are on, if you have an opioid problem, please, please get on methadone or Suboxone. That will cut your death rate by 50% or more. And, you know, if you're not alive, you cannot recover. So that would be my brief version of my message. Um, and you can find out more about my work in my latest book, which I am proud to say it was a New York Times bestseller, and it is just out in paperback. The name is Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Um, it, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent, wherever, um, it should be readily available. Um, and on my website is Maya S Z. So that's M A I A S like Sam Z like zebra.com. 
and yeah, thank you. I, I hope you will check it out. Maya Salovitz, thank you so much for your crucial work and for being on Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio. You are awesome. Hempy trails to you. Thank you. I want to get to a weekly feature of Hemp Present on CannabisRadio.com. That's the quote of the week, and here it is. Addiction isn't about substance. You aren't addicted to the substance. You are addicted to the alteration of mood that the substance brings. That's the author, Susan Cheever. That concludes this installment here presented on Cannabis Radio. I want to thank Brasco, my man in the control room, and all the Cannabis Radio sponsors and advertisers. Join me next week for some more reefer repartee and cannabis confabulation with some special hemposapien on a journey to justice. Because when it comes to prohibition, you've got the right not to remain silent. Activism requires a voice, so find your and speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. Until then, my friends, stay strong, stand tall, and toke it easy. Don't forget to email me at hemppresent at gmail.com. The Hemazent theme song, Take Back the Plants, performed by Sticker Bush, and sung by a much younger version of myself. Turn up the music, maestro. I'm out. Marijuana! The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.